That prayer that we sang uh, is, it resonates so deeply with the Word of God, and that is when God's Word is rightly proclaimed, and when it is believingly received, when it is proclaimed, it has a church-building effect. Not in the sense of churches getting bigger necessarily, but in the people that comprise the churches being stronger in their faith. That's what the Word of God does. It has a supernatural ability to push out our unbelief, to illumine our eyes, to cause us to walk by faith. And it is those kinds of changes that we are aiming for to happen in this time when we gather to worship. It's so good to be here, isn't it? So good to be here with the people of God singing God's praises together. And now we are going to continue our time of worship. Preaching isn't breaking up the worship time. It's just a continuation of the worship. Now we worship God in responding to His Word. So would you turn in the Bible with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, our text this morning, is that entire chapter that was read to you earlier in the service. And the reason why we had uh, us read the whole chapter is to get that into our minds uh, before we look at it in this message. The title of my message comes from a phrase in that song by Charles Wesley that we sang at the beginning of the service, Leap, ye lame for joy, because this recounts the miracle of a healing of a lame man that reminds us of the prophecies given in Isaiah chapter 35 that are referenced at the beginning of the service, that there would be a time when God would heal people of blindness of, of deafness, of lameness, and the lame would literally leap for joy. Now, the first time I remember hearing about this particular passage was when I was a little kid. I don't know where I was or why I was there, but I was in a, uh, in a Sunday school class in a trailer somewhere. Now, my parents as missionaries, uh, when we were in the United States, would travel from place to place and so I would often find myself on a Sunday morning in a church that was completely unfamiliar to me. Uh, but on this particular uh, morning, I remember the Sunday school teacher was this big, tall, lanky man teaching about the story of Peter healing the lame man at the temple called Beautiful. And he sang a song that went along with this passage. And the song, I'm not going to sing it for you. I know I'm disappointing many of you. Uh, but, but the gist of the song was that the, was that the lame man was leaping and jumping and praising the Lord. And every time uh, the, they, we said leaping and jumping, everyone was supposed to literally leap and jump. Not just the kids, but the, the teacher too. And so I remember this giant of a man, from my perspective, I think I was on the front row, seeing him just bound up into the air, come crashing down, and I remember the whole trailer would just shake. And in my mind, the biggest miracle of that day was that the trailer didn't just completely fall apart during that song, leaping and jumping and praising the Lord. But this indeed recounts this uh, miracle there in the early church. Now, as we think about uh, miracles, uh, we recognize that this miracle here, the healing of the lame man, is, uh, is the third of the most unusual, miraculous type of event that we've encountered so far in the book of Acts. The first, of course, would have been the ascension of Jesus when he went up onto the mountain with his disciples and in their sight went up 
into the sky and was hidden by a cloud. The second miracle, of course, would have been one that we discussed several weeks ago, and that was the miracle uh, of the speaking in tongues. When Peter and the other apostles uh, began, they were meeting there in the upper room, and suddenly there was a sound like of a mighty rushing wind. They saw what looked like flames of fire above the heads of those assembled there, and as they scattered out into the streets of Jerusalem, people from all over the Roman Empire heard in their own language those disciples of Jesus proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And now we, hear, we have here in Acts chapter 3 the third miraculous event recorded, but in reality the first miracle that is of such a kind that Jesus would perform when He was uh, walked upon the earth during His earthly ministry. Isn't it interesting, and even if you don't believe in miracles, and there could be uh, some here today that don't believe in the miraculous, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but even if you don't believe in miracles, you can at least agree that if they were to happen, they, were to, they, they would completely impress people as they did in this passage. Like you heard read to you, the people that saw this miracle were utterly astounded and amazed. But you might wonder, why is it that it was this miracle that was the first? Why the healing of a lame man to impress upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem at that time of the reality of the message about Jesus? Why didn't God choose something different? After all, He could have chosen any kind of miracle. Had He wanted to, God could have impressed people, for example, by a, a giant flaming cross emblazoned in the sky, and people would look at it and say, wow, this is amazing, it is proof that Jesus really is the Messiah. Or God could have chosen to present a miracle like a choir of angelic beings descending upon the earth singing that Jesus is the Messiah, and that would have impressed people. I mean, for that matter, it could have been that Peter and John would have walked into the temple levitating and that would have impressed people. But why, why the healing of a lame man? Well, this miracle and Peter's explanation of it that followed the miracle shows us three things about the world we live in and God's plan for the world. So we're going to look at this miracle and see what it shows us the miracle that's recorded and taken with, along with Peter's explanation of the miracle shows us something that shouldn't be, it shows us something that will be, and it shows us something that must be, okay? This miracle taken along with Peter's explanation of it shows us something that should not be, something that will be, and something that must be. So first of all, it shows us something that should not be be or something that is out of place, namely the suffering of this man, the suffering of this lame man. And by should not be, I don't mean that there is something that he did wrong. I don't mean that there is some sort of moral guilt associated with suffering. I mean that suffering is not part of God's plan for this universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and at the end of all those creative acts, the narrator of Genesis says, God looked at everything He made, and behold, it was very what? It was very good, and suffering was not part of that. And yet now we live in a world in which suffering exists. And the fact that this man was healed of his suffering shows us that suffering is something that shouldn't be. It's something that's out of place in our world. I want you to notice, first of all, the intensity of the suffering of this man. Look how he is described here in verse 2. He is a man lame from birth. 
Lame from birth, he had never experienced what it was to walk. We learn in the following chapter, in verse, ch- chapter 4 and verse 22, that this lame man was at least 40 years old. That means for nearly half a century he had endured lameness. Now, besides being a, a, uh, inhibiting him physically, besides the physical inability, think of what else lameness would do to a man in, the, in first century Jerusalem. He couldn't work. There wasn't social security. There weren't benefits for those with disabilities. All he could hope for was for someone passing by that gate beautiful to take pity on him and cast a few pieces of coins into the, into the hat or whatever container he had sitting out there. As a lame man, he would not have enjoyed the joys normally associated with, with growing up and being a man, the joy of getting married and, and having children. Most likely, he didn't have a wife. He didn't have, have a family to take care of him. Otherwise, they would have. The, the joy and the dignity of owning property, of, of having some sort of sense of future, of bequeathing your property to, to descendants, none of these this man would have experienced. He was lame from birth. And besides his inability, physically, financially, socially, we cannot fail to notice that his lameness formed his very identity. People thought of him, when people saw him, they merely thought of him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Who is that? Oh, that's the lame man. Imagine having your identity bound up with your malady. Your very identity is bound up with something you cannot do. That was the lot of this man. He was as much as a fixture of the temple as a bench or a column or or a wall, although without the dignity, he was suffering. He was a man who suffered intensely. And the very fact that this miracle undid that particular suffering shows us that there is something about suffering that is utterly out of place. Now, you might think, okay, that seems like a rather mundane observation, that suffering is out of place, that God did not intend suffering for it to be part of the world that we live in. But if you think about it, this observation actually gives us so much hope. Because the fact that God, as the divine editor of this document we call the world, that has now been riddled with mistakes, goes back to that document with His divine pen and corrects those mistakes, shows us that that wasn't the original script. The miracle is an undoing of the evil that has interjected itself into this world. Suffering is not... Is not, is a, suffering is a foreign invader. Now, this is, runs contrary to the way many people want to think about suffering. Some people say, and this, this forms a, a, a large part of the philosophy of many people living in the world today, some people say suffering is just an illusion. It's just the way you look at things. Suffering is just a fantasy. If you were to think right about things, If you were to actually get rid of this illusion, then you'd get rid of suffering too. It's just illusory. It's just an illusion. Think right, get your mind in the right position, and suffering will be no more. Many people ascribe to that philosophy as a way of dealing with suffering. 
Many other people have a different approach. Instead of saying suffering is just illusory, instead of saying that suffering is just uh, an illusion, they'll say, well, suffering is simply bound up in the nature of existence. To exist is to suffer, and the only way to be released from suffering is to be released from existence. There is no way out of this, there's no way out of the pain unless we just completely are dissolved and then finally we'll reach complete nirvana, dissolution, not thinking, not being, and that's the only way we'll rid, this, rid our, pro, our problem of suffering. But this miracle that undoes the suffering of this lame man teaches us that we can dare to hope that there can be an existence that is free from suffering, a hope that many people don't dare let themselves have. The healing of this lame man shows us that there can be an existence that does not have suffering woven into it. C.S. Lewis has called pain and suffering God's megaphone to get our attention. He said something very striking. He says that, that we can ignore many things. We can even ignore pleasures. God may whisper to us in our pleasures. He may speak to us in our consciences, but He shouts to us in our pain. Our pain and suffering is one powerful reminder that this world is not our home. There is some, something fundamentally broken about it. And we cannot resolve the situation just by wishing it away or by, or by saying, no, just get a stiff upper lip. It's just the way to face reality. And the only way to be, escape from it is, is to be dead, is to be not exist. Um, the miracles give us the hope. They teach us to dare to hope that there can be existence that is free from suffering. And this is entirely in line with the miracles that Jesus did too. Isn't it interesting the kinds of miracles that Jesus did to demonstrate the reality of his claim that the kingdom of God had come? He said in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the kingdom of God has arrived. And what did he do to prove that the kingdom of God really had arrived and what the kingdom of God is like? He did miracles. He healed the blind. He touched lepers and their leprosy left them. He raised the son of a grieving widow. He raised the brother of grieving sisters. He touched Peter's mother-in-law, and she was free from her fever. What was Jesus doing in all these miracles? He was relieving people of their suffering, of what should not be. This is so different than what other people, like magicians, would have done to impress people and to, and to try to get people uh, to be impressed by their, by their skills, by the most famous magician uh, that we can think of would be Harry Houdini. And Harry Houdini's, uh, uh, the most fam famous magician and his most famous magic trick was most likely, probably from my research, uh, his escape from this galvanized steel milk jug. And in the early 1900s, this trick was advertised as the trick that if it went wrong, it would mean death for Harry Houdini. It involved Harry getting into this massive steel container filled with water and then people putting a lid on it and getting padlocks and, sh and just locking it shut. And in fact, Houdini would invite the, the people present at the, at the show to hold their breath with him 
to feel how long he was in there. And of course, every time he would escape and people would be amazed and think, how in the world did he, he do that? But you know what? When Jesus wanted to demonst- demonstrate his power, he did none of these things. He did no magic trick. He did not escape from some galvanized steel container. He healed people. In that sense, the miracles of Jesus are kind of like a movie trailer to the kingdom of God. Jesus had come to the earth, and he's saying, the kingdom of God has arrived, and let me prove it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, he said, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How is it like a movie trailer? We're in this sense. When a movie trailer comes out, it teaches you at least two things. Number one, it's proof that the movie's coming. I mean, you can see it. They've already filmed it. You, you can see scenes from it. You can hear the, the music score. You can see that they've already done some editing to it. It's proof that wh- whatever they're working on, it, it's, it's come, right? It's, they, it's, it's proof of the, the coming of the movie. But, but there's a second thing a movie trailer does, and then it shows you what kind of movie it is. You may be watching the trailer. You may be like, ah, I don't think I want to watch that movie anymore. It, trailer didn't look so great. It looks like one of those Christmassy Hallmark movies. Or maybe if you're into those, that's something that you're going to watch this season. But, but a movie trailer shows you that it's coming and what it's like. In a similar way, that the, the miracles that Jesus did were proof that the kingdom of God has arrived and showing what nature the kingdom of God is. What is this like? The kingdom of God is a reality in which lameness and blindness and sickness and disease are coming untrue. That's what it's like. To say the kingdom of God is here, for Jesus to say the kingdom of God is here, now let me show you what it's going to be like. It's going to be like this. Everything that causes suffering and pain for you is becoming undone. That's why Jesus healed the lame. That's why Jesus put his hand upon the sick. That's why Jesus raised the dead. He was showing us this is what reality can be. This is what my kingdom will be like. It will be a place, as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11, where the lion and the lamb dwell together, where a little child can play by the hole of an adder and not be concerned that he'll be bitten. There shall be nothing that will destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord Almighty. This is the nature of the coming kingdom, and Jesus is giving us a preview. He's giving us a trailer, and we see a preview of that, a trailer of that. In Acts chapter 3, with the healing of the lame man, leap ye lame for joy because the kingdom of God has come upon you. It shows us that this suffering that we experience right now is something that should not be. It also shows us something that will be. It shows us something that will be, and that is the coming kingdom of God. You notice back to the text, Peter says in verse 19, look at verse 19 of Acts 3, he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Imagine the scene here. There is a man, everybody knows he was the guy that used to lay at the temple, at the gate beautiful of the temple and beg for alms. Here is the guy who couldn't even stand up, much less leap. And now here he is standing and he's hopping up and down for joy. 
Here is a man who is healed of his lameness, and now Peter says there's coming a day, there will come a day of the restoration, not just of this man's lameness, but of all things. See, this miracle in Peter's explanation of it shows us something that shouldn't be, should not be, and that is that is the suffering and the sickness and the sin that plagues our earth, but it also shows us something that will be, and that is the removal of all these things and its cause, which is sin. There will be a restoring of all things. There will be a return of this Christ. Why is it that Peter was so concerned to point out that this teaching was done in the name of Jesus? Go back to chapter 3 and look at verse, uh, look at verse 6. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Why was Peter so concerned to identify as this healing as being done in the name of Jesus? Look back also at verse 16 of chapter 3. Peter says, and his name, referring to Jesus, by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Why is Peter so concerned to say, this healing was done in the name of Jesus? You might say, well, Peter was being humble. He didn't want to attribute it to himself. Well, yes, definitely. Peter was saying that Jesus is responsible, but, but his emphasis on the name of Jesus was meant to signal the fact that this healing was done as an extension of of Jesus' kingly authority. In our modern culture, we often lose the impact of doing something in someone else's name. But we hear it sometimes in phrases like this, open up in the name of the law. You can imagine a scene in which there are some uh, government agents standing uh, in front of the door of someone who's been uh, suspect of some crime, and they're knocking the door telling, open up in the name of the law. What does it mean to open up in the name of the law? What are they saying? They're saying this, we have the authority of the U.S. government backing us. It is to say that whatever name you're invoking, you're saying, we have the authority of that name behind us. But notice the impact this might have had on Peter's listeners at the time. When he said to the lame man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What authority did Jesus Christ of Nazareth have? To say Jesus of Nazareth would have been a little bit like us saying, in the name of Bill from Hopkinton. Ooh, Bill from Hopkinton. Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth was an obscure place, and Jesus was a relatively common name. What is this all about in the name of Jesus of Nazareth? This doesn't mean anything to me. You see, what, what Peter was saying here by invoking the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he was saying something has reversed. This obscure peasant from Galilee has now been vindicated as the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Now He's been proven to be the Christ, and now He is extending His kingly authority, not just over human beings and their will, but over everything, including sin and sickness. So in the name of Jesus Christ, 
the risen Lord and Savior, rise up and walk. That was the import. That was the significance of invoking the name of Jesus. And that's why Peter was so concerned to point out to his questioning and wondering audience, it wasn't by my piety, it wasn't by my authority, it was by the royal authority of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, a common name from an obscure place, but an uncommon person because he was vindicated as the Son of God. It is his authority, it is his power that makes the lame walk, that makes the blind see, that makes the deaf hear. That's the authority that Peter was invoking. And it is an extension of Jesus' divine authority to reverse the progress of sin and suffering in this world. That's what Jesus was doing through Peter. Now, I said earlier that I would address this question of whether miracles are possible. You say, okay, something that shouldn't be, yeah, that's suffering. Suffering is not, suffering is a foreign invader into our world. Something that should be, that is the removing of all this sin and suffering, the restoring of all things, but is this really possible? A lot of people reject the miraculous because they say it's unscientific. They'll say ahead of time, I can't believe a miracle because if a miracle is indeed the, the, the breaking of a law of nature, well, I can't believe that laws of nature can be broken. And yet the mindset that would reject a piece of data before that data is even considered is a mindset that would undercut the whole scientific enterprise. I mean, what is science if not being willing to follow the data wherever it leads you? To reject the miraculous out of hand without even taking into consideration the, the evidence for it or the implications of it is to sabotage the entire scientific enterprise. I mean, what is science if not taking into account what there is evidence for so that we could expand our understanding of reality? And what is a miracle if not the dropping of clues that reality is much bigger than what we see it to be? That reality is not a world that is fused with suffering and sickness and pain. But reality one day will be a place where all that is removed. And the proof of that has come in the time of Jesus, who as the perfect man rose from the dead and healed the sick. That is reality. That is what will be. And that is the time that Peter felt foretells. Now, what does this mean for us? We've looked at something that should not be, something that will be. But briefly, before we move on to the third and final consideration, what does this mean for us in terms of our approach to suffering? I know that many of you are suffering now. And many of you who may be on the live stream uh, are at home because you are suffering. You know people that are suffering. How does this idea that suffering is something that really should not be and yet is, how, how does that inform our approach to the things that are so painful to us? Well, for one thing, it gives us hope. It gives us hope that what, that our deepest intuition is right. And that is these things that we experience right now are really foreign invaders. They should not be. And we can put our hope in in the Lord, in the God who has sovereign control over all these things. 
Yes, God has the ability to take even what is a foreign invader into our world, what was his perfectly good world, and he can turn them into the instruments that are for our good and his glory. That's what is behind Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8 when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And after all, if God is as powerful as he is, what can possibly separate us from the love of Christ? Can, can tribulation or distress or nakedness or peril or danger or sword? Paul ends Romans chapter 8 with this confident proclamation that no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That the suffering that we experience, they're not things that are out of God's control. It's not as if God is saying, oh no, I didn't plan for this. What am I, what's going to happen? No, God takes all these strands of suffering, as the song goes, every strand of suffering has a place in His tapestry of grace. As to all the whys, as to all the questions about suffering, we may never know the answer, but we do know this. Jesus Himself came as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief to bear our suffering, and that reality gives us hope. My friend, take hope in that today. There's another way that we can apply this, and that is this. You may be experiencing great suffering right now. You may not be, but certainly you know someone who is. And, and if the Christian message is true, if it is true that the kingdom of God has arrived, and it is a kingdom in which, in which one day in its fullness all suffering will come untrue, and if it is true that Jesus has made you, by His grace, a part of His kingdom, then don't you want to do everything you can to alleviate suffering in this world? I mean, don't you want to do what you can and what is closest to you to bring about peace instead of conflict? To bring about healing instead of hurt? To use your words in such a way that would encourage rather than discourage, that would lift up instead of cast down? I mean, can you, you may not be able to work a miracle like Peter did. I mean, Peter didn't work it after all. But you not, may not be able to, in this era of history, say to your coworker, I say to you in the name of Jesus, be rid of your sickness. But, but God has put certain things into your influence that can relieve suffering from people, for people. Can you extend kindness tomorrow morning, this coming week? right in your home, right in your place of work, right on the work site, right with the people that you commute from one place to another with? Can you extend the basic message of this, the, the gospel of the kingdom, and that is the kingdom has arrived, and it is a place where sin and sadness and suffering are coming undone? What can you do to alleviate the suffering right around you? This miracle, the healing of this lame man, and Peter's explanation of it shows us something that shouldn't be, something that will be, and finally, it shows us something that must be. It shows us something that must be. You notice what Peter says in verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. There are the facts. The facts are that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Lord, and that God has fulfilled prophecies by allowing that Lord and Messiah to suffer. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you, Peter says? He says to his audience, repent. There's something that you must do in light of this miracle. 
in light of this preview, this trailer of the kingdom of God and the future coming of Jesus and the making of all things right, the reality is this. In order to make everything right, there's going to have to be a destroying of what is wrong. Peter says this very clearly in verse 23. Would you look at that in your Bibles? And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky made this insightful comment in one of his novels. He said, we wish, something like this, we wish that the line separating good from evil were so simple that we could just take all the good people and put them over here and all the evil people over here and get rid of the evil people and just leave the good people so that the world is a better place. He said, but you can't do that because the line separating good and evil runs right through the heart of every human being. That is, we are this this miserable mix of good and evil. And even in our attempts to do good, even our very attempts to do good, we can end up doing harm. That is the, the baffling human condition. That's why God said in His Word, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Peter calls what these people did wickedness. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up a servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What was their wickedness? Their wickedness was that they didn't see Jesus, the Messiah, for who he was. They saw him as a criminal that ought to be condemned. They saw him as someone who ought to be shut up and put away, but they didn't see him as the Lord of the universe. They didn't see him as God's anointed one. They didn't see him as the Son of God. And Peter says, you need to change the way you see Jesus. You saw him as someone who should be condemned. You saw him as a common rabble-rouser. You saw him as a blasphemer. But now, in light of the resurrection, you must see him as your Lord and Savior. So repent and see him as that. There's something that you must do, and that is repentance. Repentance from wickedness. That is seeing Jesus in any other light than, from, than what he truly is. What you must, if repentance is a kind of turning, what, what then must you turn to? You must turn to Jesus. Notice the Jesus as Peter describes him, as the one to whom we should turn. Look at verse 18 again. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What Peter wanted to highlight about the Jesus to whom we should turn was this. Jesus as the suffering Savior. My friends, this is how we must see Jesus. Jesus as the one who is suffering for our sins. You know, I told you earlier that Harry Houdini's famous magic trick was the escape from the galvanized steel giant milk jug. You think about the miracles that Jesus did. People ask Jesus from time to time to do miracles to help them. An official whose daughter was, was sick and dying, Lord, come and heal my daughter. A woman who's, who's uh, another woman whose daughter was, was very ill, Jesus, please heal my daughter. And Jesus graciously responded to these requests and, and healed people. But there was one miracle near the end of his life Jesus refused to do. 
It was a miracle that would have spared someone from the most unjust kind of suffering possible. There was a miracle that he was asked to do when he was hanging upon the cross, and it was this. Jesus, come down from the cross. If you saved others, why not save yourself? The very miracle that could have saved Jesus himself from suffering was the one miracle Jesus refused to do. Why? Because in suffering, Jesus was doing a much greater miracle. And that is he was suffering on behalf of people like you and me. That's why when Peter invites his hearers to repent, he points to Jesus as the suffering Savior. Why? Because Jesus takes all the suffering in our world because of sin, and he absorbs it into himself, and he suffers on our behalf. That's the Jesus to whom we turn. We have a hard time believing that we're so flawed, but we will not have a hard time believing that if only we look in faith to Jesus he believed how flawed we were. How flawed did Jesus believe we were? So flawed that it took nothing less than his sacrificial death on our behalf to forgive us. And that's exactly what we're being invited to do. That's exactly what you, my friend, are being invited to do if you've never done that, is to repent, that is turn and look at Jesus in a way you've never seen him before. Not just as a religious option, not just as a moral example, not just as someone who can soothe your fears at times when you need him, but as your Lord and Savior. That's who Jesus is. And that's how you must see him, and that's how you must trust him. And for those of you who are trusting him, who have trusted him, are you trusting him that way continually? Are you seeing him in light of your own suffering? My friend, this miracle teaches us that Jesus and Jesus alone is the healer of all our suffering. Would you bow your heads? In a moment, we are going to sing a song of response. It's actually the last time we'll be able to sing this song as a song of the month and that is almost home. And it could be that this song for you will remind you of that time that we have evidence for, we've saw, we saw a trailer of when there will be no more sickness and suffering. This is not just pie in the sky. This is not just a false hope. But it's at the very core of the, the Christian message. It could be that you'll have to admit, I don't know if that time were to come that I'd be part of it. My friend, you can be if you put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sins and all its penalties, all its consequences. Or it could be that you haven't been viewing your suffering right. Maybe you've tried to wish it away. Maybe you've not done what you can to, by the grace of God, alleviate the suffering of those around you. Would you take a brief moment before we sing to pray and just talk to God about these things?